He's taught, he's raised the dead, he's healed the sick, he's cast out demons, and so on. And according to Acts 2 and verse 22, we know that God the Father was doing all these things in Jesus to display Jesus to his people by wonders and signs and miracles and so on. And surely by now they have come to some conclusion about who Jesus is. And he stops and he turns around. The custom in those days was that the the teacher and the rabbi would walk out in front and the disciples would come along behind him. And all of a sudden he sort of stops and turns around. And as they all begin to catch up to him and surround him, he stops and asks them a question. Who do you say, or who do the people say, sorry, that I am? And they get various answers. Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets, and so on. And then he looks at them, and in, I can almost imagine the scene and the, the depth of the stare of Jesus' eyes as he bores in on his disciples, and he says, literally in the Greek, but you, who do you say that I am? They've seen him. They've seen everything he's done. They've heard his words. They've watched him as they've walked and talked. They've watched him do things. They've been alone with him as he's explained the parables to them. They've seen all of that. And now Jesus' eyes bores deeply into theirs. And he asks a question that every single person on the face of this earth must come face to face with and consider. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? And as usual, Peter, uh, I like Peter. I really like Peter. He's big. He's blundering. He often opens his mouth before he speaks. Reminds me so much of myself, frankly. But he steps up. And as no one else is saying anything, he says, you are the Christ. And we know from Matthew Matthew 16, sorry, that that Jesus turns back to him and says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven has opened your eyes. He's revealed this to you. And this is what you say. You might be asking yourself this morning, why are we spending four weeks looking at four words, and we're ignoring the first three words, and we're just focusing on the one last word, Christ? Why? Why spend so much time on it? Because it's so pivotal. It's so fundamental. If you take the book of Mark and divide it up into two main halves and put a great statement at the beginning, at the middle, between the two halves, and the very end of the book, these three statements are this. In the, in the book of Mark, chapter 1 and verse 1, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that begins the whole story. And it moves and works its way all the way forward to Mark chapter 8. And it hits this point, this midpoint of the book. And then a second great statement is made. You are the Christ. And from that point onwards, Jesus repeatedly tells his disciples about his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And it keeps going all the way through to chapter 15 and verse 39. And outside Jerusalem on a hilltop as three men have died. And the crowds have scattered, and the earthquake has shook the earth, and a great shout has gone up from the middle cross. A centurion, with his spear and his sword, stands at the foot of the cross and looks up at Jesus, and he makes the third great statement. Truly, this man is, or was, the Son of God. You get the point? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
you are the Christ, this is the Son of God. It begins with a complete statement, and the two other statements unpack both halves of that statement, the first one. Why are we spending so much time on he is the Christ? Well, this morning what I want to do is I want to ask and answer four questions about Christ, our high priest. You got the little note sheet there. You'd see there's a breakdown. The first one's kind of a recap. What does the word Christ mean? The second question I want to answer is this. Why do we need a high priest? We've been singing about the high priest this morning. We've been talking about him. Why is it that we as a people of God need a high priest? We have a high priest. Absolutely, we do. We are all priests of a living God, but we have a high priest who is Jesus Christ. Why do we need one? Thirdly, what was wrong with the Old Testament high priest? Why do we need a new priest of a new order and all of that stuff that Hebrews talks about? Why is it so important? That's the third question. The number four, how has Christ become our high priest? What did he achieve in his priestly ministry? So first of all, what does the word Christ mean? The word Christ has so much meaning packed up into it. In a simple sense, Christ means anointed. It's just a transliteration from Hebrew to Greek and into English, and it means anointed, poured with oil, literally olive oil poured over someone's head so it runs down their head and down their face and drips onto the ground. More specifically, Christ in the Bible means anointed with the Holy Spirit. So the oil is an external picture of an internal reality. So we don't use oil. We don't anoint people with oil anymore. It's not part of our custom, our culture. In that Eastern culture, it was a very common thing. When you came to someone's house, they would wash your feet with water. They would anoint your head with oil, a fragrant oil, so that if you were a little bit smelly, you didn't notice that. It was just a common thing. But they used that common picture, much like Jesus used the common picture of bread and wine on the table to illustrate and demonstrate his body and his blood given for us. So the writers, the Bible writers, have used oil and the anointing of oil as a picture to display something else. So Jesus is the Son of God, the anointed. He is filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the anointing oil was, was oil, was a display, as we said. In the New Testament, Jesus was anointed. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. You remember a couple, maybe four weeks ago, we looked at all of that, how the Spirit of God was in Jesus, leading him and driving him and walking with him and going with him, empowering him and enabling him to do the work that God had given him. Now, anointing has a specific purpose in biblical history. The anointing identified the recipient as qualified by God for a specific role. Okay, so you get your qualifications. Uh, you might get a degree, and they put a little, bunch of little numbers at the end of your name. I just discovered what that's all about, and so I'm happy to say I have a bth. That's all my B-T-H. Bth, that's all it is. doesn't mean anything. It just says that you got some kind of qualifications. Well, in the Old Testament, that anointing with oil in specific uses showed the qualification of that person for a specific role or a specific job that God had given them to do. A prophet was anointed. He was shown that he is anointed with the Holy Spirit, and that oil represented that to say that he was now qualified as the Spirit of God resting on him to speak for God. The king was anointed. He was taking the oil and it was poured over his head. You remember the scene? David is being anointed by Samuel, the son of Jesse. 
brings all the kids by. Is this the last one? Oh, yeah, there's one more. He's out with the sheep. He comes in. I can almost see him. He's got a staff in one and a crook in the other. He's got a little sheep. He's bringing them in with him. And Samuel takes the oil and he uncorks it and he pours the oil over David's head. And he anoints him as the new king of Israel over God's people. It was a mark of his qualification by God to serve in a specific role. Now, last week we saw that Jesus is the anointed prophet of God. He taught the people the word of God. He foretold the future to the people of God, and he will come again in a day to judge all the nations of the earth. I can't wait for that day. Can you imagine? Every single person who has ever lived all gathered before Jesus, one throne established, Jesus' throne. And he goes through that pile of people and he separates them all out. Sheep on the right-hand side and goats on the left-hand side. And for the first time in all of human history, all of the people of God will be completely separated from all of those who are not part of the people of God. And God will, the Lord Jesus will judge them. Those who are not his people will be cast out of darkness. And those who are his people will rule and reign with him forever. Today, what I want to look at is Jesus, the anointed high priest of God. He is anointed to qualify him for his priestly work. And next Sunday morning, believe it or not, very short, we're going to look at how Jesus is the anointed king of kings. We will start at 10 o'clock and we will finish at 11 and we'll have a time of communion and some singing as well. But today, why do we need a high priest? You might have wondered that. There's priests in all kinds of religions have priests and those that intimate between God and man. Why else we as Christians need a high priest? Well, there's three basic reasons why we need a high priest. I'll go through them quickly. Number one, there is God. We need a high priest because there is a God and we need someone to mediate between us and him. Number two, there is a nature of God's law. God has a law that puts restrictions and... and uh, requirements on us and we need a mediator we need a high priest because of that law and thirdly we need a high priest because of our human condition so to unpack them all a little bit first of all there is God God who is holy and righteous and just and good God who is perfect and complete in his holiness which is by the way the beauty of all his other attributes is the holiness of God we were outside this morning in our prayer time uh, Grant and I talking about that point there is nothing of any impurity nothing of any taintedness in God he is absolutely and totally and perfectly pure and holy God is also the creator of all things. And as a creator, he desires a relationship with us, his creatures. God created us with the capacity for fellowship with himself. Stop and think about that for a little while. Wrap your head around the fact that God designed you and created you for a relationship and a fellowship with him. That's something that goes beyond human understanding a little bit. We think we are so completely removed and cut off from God, and yet God designed us for fellowship. Why did God save you? So you could preach the gospel to thousands? Nope. So you could go out and do all kinds of great works and miracles and healings? Nope. God saved you so you can have a relationship with him. It doesn't matter if you're quadriplegic, paraplegic, or fully athletic. Every single person who has been saved have been saved so they can have a relationship and a fellowship with God. 
God designed us and created us to glorify him and enjoy him. So we need a mediator, a high priest, because of God. Secondly, we need one because of his law. God has given man the standards, the laws, the rules by which God and man can have that relationship. Every relationship that you're involved in has certain rules and guidelines that govern how that relationship works. So God has also given us laws and rules. His laws are not just arbitrary. God didn't go, you know, uh, I don't like stealing, so we'll just do that. No, I don't, you know, he didn't just create rules for the sake of creating rules to put up some kind of guidelines and boundaries. Those rules and those laws are all the extension of his holiness and his just character. Who God is, is displayed and unpacked for us in his law. For example, he forbade lying because he loves the truth, because he is the truth, because he cannot lie and he hates those that do. God commanded us to love the Lord our God and he commanded us to love our neighbor. Why would he do that? Because the Bible tells us that God is love. So those laws and rules that God created are an extension and a display of his own personal character. God's law is not an arbitrary thing spoken for the sake of making and having rules. He, he also says that disobeying the law of God is not simply to break a written rule. Disobedience to the law of God is to offend God and act against his holy and just character. One of the things that this world has lost sight of is its sin. We think, well, if it doesn't hurt anybody else, I can do whatever I want, right? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. When we sin, we are not just sinning against ourselves. We are sinning. Uh, We're not just sinning against ourselves. We're sinning against God. We're acting against his character, his righteousness, and our sin offends God. It makes him very angry. We don't like the idea of an angry God anymore in this world. But God is angry. Disobedience to the law of God is to offend God and act against his holy and just character. There are also consequences against disobeying and violating God's law. The consequence of offending and insulting God, number one, and the consequence of death. The Bible makes it absolutely clear that the soul that sins against God shall surely die. And that means to be cut off, to be absolutely separated from God. The greatest problem with hell, I don't think, is the heat and the flames. I think the greatest problem that we have to face regarding hell is the fact that we are cut off from and separated from God. We need a high priest. We need a mediator because of God's law. Thirdly, we need a mediator because of the human condition. Man is God's creature, accountable to God for all. Listen, you are not a law unto yourself. You are accountable to somebody. Everybody must give an account. Man is God's creature, accountable to God for everything he does and says and thinks. Man was designed and created to glorify God in everything they do. But, sadly, man has chosen to rebel against God. He will not obey God's law, commands, or words. Every time we fail to glorify God in every single thought, word, or deed, we have sinned against God. What's the greatest verse in the Bible about sin? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? 
It literally means we have failed to glorify God in everything we do. Every single time that you don't love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, you have sinned against God. We failed to glorify God. Man is now in a fallen condition of offending God continuously. Man is now in a situation that he is utterly unable to save himself from the wrath of God. How can man die in payment for his sin and then continue to live reconciled to God? It's impossible. The reality is we need a high priest. We're cut off from God. We're unable to save ourselves. God who is absolutely holy and just and good. His law, which is an extension of his character, is holy and just and good. And we have chosen not to keep his law. We have chosen to reject and rebel against God. So why do we need a high priest? Because we are sinful and under God's just wrath. Because we are utterly unable to save ourselves. We need someone who can save us. We need someone who can represent us to God. We need a mediator to go between us and God. We need one who is not in trouble with God to plead our case for us. You go to court, right? You hold up on a charge. You get a lawyer, you go into court, and the lawyer speaks for you. When the judge addresses you, your lawyer jumps up and answers, my client says this, my client did this, my my party that I represent is in this situation, and your lawyer, your advocate, or I guess you call it a barrister down here in Australia, he speaks for you. He's an advocate. And that's what we need. We need somebody who is not in trouble with the judge. A lawyer who represents you, he is not in trouble with the judge. You are. You're the one who's in deep trouble. And he speaks for you. We need someone who can represent us to God. We need someone who is not in trouble with God to plead our case for us like a legal advocate. We need one like that. And the high priest is exactly that person. He is charged with the responsibility of representing the people to God. The prophet of God represents God to the people, right? So the prophet speaks for God and we listen And the high priest speaks to God for us, and he listens. God, in his mercy and his justice, allowed for an innocent victim to be offered up to die in our place. So if I commit a sin, and I can convince an innocent victim beside me to die for my sin, then I'm allowed to bring him and offer him up in my place, and he will be accepted for me. The high priest was the one who offered a sacrifice on our behalf, a payment for our sin. The high priest would go and offer the animal in the Old Testament on our behalf. And we're going to see that more in a moment. So the question becomes, that's why we need a high priest. Well then, what was wrong with all the Old Testament high priests? There were hundreds of them. Some of them were great and godly men. Again, we need to understand as best we can what the high priestly work is. We have to turn back to the Old Testament. And the high priest in the Old Testament was taken and set apart by God for their ministry. They were not randomly called like prophets and kings and apostles and so on. They were all descendants of Aaron, 
the first high priests, they were anointed with oil to qualify them. Exodus 29 describes Moses being brought out in front of the tabernacle. And they take all these beautiful, richly ornamented robes. They cover him with these robes. They put the turban on his head and a gold plate across the turban that said, Holiness to the Lord. And they put the effort on his, on his breast piece and all these beautiful stones engraved and set in filigree settings all over the front of it. And on the shoulders were the names of the six tribes of Israel and the six tribes of Israel. And everywhere Aaron would go, he would bear the responsibility for representing all the tribes of Israel on his shoulders. Inside that breastpiece were two strange things. We don't really know what they look like because they were lost to history, called the Urim and the Thummim. You say, what a Urim and Thummim. They're, they're basically holy dice. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but when they wanted to discern the will of God, they used the Urim and the Thummim, and they would cast them like casting lots to discern what God's will was in that particular situation. And this priest, then, when Aaron was all clothed up, they took the oil and was richly fragrant with all kinds of spices. I think you were burning incense the other day, or frankincense at the party. It had a very strong, very particular aroma. And that oil was mixed with the frankincense and they took it and they poured it over top of Aaron's head. And the oil ran down his face and on his beard and on his clothes onto the ground. And he was anointed as the high priest. And he was set apart by God and qualified by God for that particular work. Now... Priests and the high priest had several specific functions to perform. They were to serve God with dignity and honor in the tabernacle and later the temple. That's why their robes were beautifully woven and colorful. They had to be constantly cleansed and washed. It was all about dignity and honor and respect. They were involved in the offering of the sacrifices for sin. I didn't know this until very recently, but it wasn't so much the killing I used to always think that the priest took the knife and the animal and cut its throat and caught the blood and all that. In actual fact, the offerer, the ordinary person who'd sinned before God, he would bring the animal, he would put his hand upon the head of the animal, and then he would take the knife and cut the throat, and the priest would catch the blood in the bowl, and he would bring it around, and he would lift it up, and he would offer it to God, and he would sprinkle it on the sides of the, the great big bronze altar, and he would pour the blood out and take the piece of the animal as being... Uh, barbecue, basically, bird to death, on the altar. No, sorry, it was already dead. He would take it, the memorial part and put it on the altar, and that would be burned up. So his role wasn't so much in killing, but it was in the offering, the bringing of those things to God. He was involved in discerning God's will, the Urim and the Thummim, as we were saying. The priests and the high priests were involved in teaching the people. I didn't know this until recently either. The priests had a responsibility, just like the prophets to teach the people of God about holiness and right behavior. The priests were the guardians of the sanctuary. They kept the outsiders away. They prevented unauthorized offers. You remember the story of King Uzziah? King Uzziah is a great king of Judah, and he's greatly helped by God until his pride lifted him up. And one day he decided he would go into the temple, and he would have a bowl of of incense, and he would offer incense before the Lord on the altar of incense. And the priests rushed in after him, and they said, no, no, no. 
Uzziah, it's not for you to offer incense before God. And as he turned around in anger, he reached out his hand against him. And the Bible says that leprosy broke out all over his arm and his forehead. And leprosy was the worst, most disgusting disease you can imagine. And anybody who had leprosy was to be completely stayed away from because he was unclean. And what did the priest do? The Bible says they reached out and they grabbed that guy and they thrust him out of the temple. They were guardians. Their role was to protect and look after the holy place and the place of God in the temple and the tabernacle. Sixthly, they were to pray and intercede with the people, with God in general. I go back to the story of the Day of Atonement. And after the Day of Atonement has been made and all the blood has been offered, and the high priest goes in behind the Holy of Holies, and he has the blood which he then sprinkles on top of the Ark of the Covenant for the people to make atonement for their sin. And as he would come back out of the tabernacle or out of the temple, and the people were all standing around outside waiting to see what would happen. And as he came back out, it would display to all of them that the offering had been accepted. And what he would do is he would lift up his hands and he would begin to pray and pray for the people and bless the people as part of that prayer. And it was symbolic to them that God had heard their prayers, had accepted that atonement on their behalf. It was a great sign of joy. You know what's really cool? Jesus, when he finished all his work, he went to a mountain outside of Jerusalem somewhere, I think in Galilee, and he got all his disciples together and told them about how all authority had been given to him on heaven and on earth. And as he's standing there, he lifts up his hands like a high priest would, and he begins to bless the disciples. And as he's doing that, what's he do? He's lifted up out of their sight and taken back to heaven. And he ever lives in heaven. And what's he doing? He's praying for us. I don't know what thrills your soul. But I'll tell you something. To know that Jesus is praying for me, that thrills my soul. That gives me the strength to keep going, to know that somebody is praying for me. I'm not on this on my own. There is somebody who is lifting up his voice and pleading with the Father. He is pleading his righteousness on my behalf. And listen, as he sits in heaven, seated beside his Father, he is interceding for us and he is pleading his righteousness for you. That's a great hope. Back at the sermon. To answer the question, what was wrong with the Old Testament high priest? We can see it most clearly in the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur. It's the most important day for the high priest. It's covered in Leviticus chapter 16. The Bible describes how only once a year and only with blood could the high priest enter behind the veil, the veil into the Holy of Holies. But here's the thing. He must first bring blood for himself to atone for his own sin. And there's the problem. He then, after he had atoned for his own sin, then he could bring blood to atone for the people's sin. Every year, year after year after year after year, he brought it again and again and again and again. It was an endless cycle. And one of the things I discovered in studying through the book of Hebrews is, listen, every single drop of blood could do nothing. Not a thing. All it could do, as, they, as he took the blood and he splattered it on top of the Ark of the Covenant before the presence of God, what he was saying was, not yet, Lord, the day is coming. Not yet, Lord, the day is coming when Jesus will hang on a cross and his blood will be poured out. And then, 
then atonement will be made. This blood, this bull's blood, can atone for Adam's very first sin. All it can do is point and remind you that one day Jesus will come. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for one single sin. And God, you think about that? God in immense grace allowed the man into his presence, a sinful man with a bowl of blood, blood that could accomplish nothing. And in grace, he overlooked it all and said, I will wait to the day when Jesus comes and then my wrath will be poured out and then his blood will be poured out and then it will be all done. And when Jesus shouted from the cross, it's finished. And the great earthquake shook the whole city and the veil in the temple was stripped from the top to the bottom, broken in half, and God could come out and man could go in. Then it was done. Why is the Old Testament high priest not sufficient? It's because he could not even atone for his own sin. It's like having a lawyer who is guilty of the very same crime that you've been charged for, and you go into court together, and you stand together at the, at the little desk there, and the judge is up on his bench, and he says, who represents this man? Well, he does. But isn't he guilty of the same thing? Well, yeah, but, you know, and, you know, he's my lawyer, right? That's pointless. He can't represent me. He's in the trouble with the same judge for the same problem. And that's exactly what the problem with the Old Testament high priests. They could not represent us because they couldn't even represent themselves. All they did for all those years, and I would not, without exaggeration, say millions of gallons of blood was splattered all across the Middle East behind the Israelites as they moved around the desert and through the nation. It didn't atone for one sin. It could not. All it could do was say, there's coming a day. Jesus is coming. His blood one day will be poured out. That's what we're looking for. When you see this blood, Father, look ahead to the day. How has then, number four, question, how has Jesus become our high priest First of all, who is Jesus and how is he fit to be a high priest? We know from studying the book of Mark that he is the eternal, pre-existent, second person of the Trinity. He took on human flesh and blood the moment of the conception in Mary's womb. He is fully man and he is fully God. He is fully man and he is able to represent us fully and properly to God. He is not just an ordinary human being. Don't ever get that idea. Yeah, he looked just like us. He probably looked a lot like Andrew. You know, darker kind of skin, black curly hair. No joke. I don't mean to be offensive. Offensive. That's what he looked like. But he was no ordinary human being at all. He was the absolute epitome of humanity. Everything that we were designed and created to be was perfectly shown in Jesus. He was the epitome of it all. He is fully man so he can represent us to God. He is also fully God so he can represent God to us. When he walked this earth preaching and teaching, he was speaking as God to the people. What the Bible say in these last days? He has spoken through his son. He has given the full demonstration, the full display, the full revelation of himself in Jesus. He is fully God, so he has no sin. He does not require atonement, salvation of any kind. He is fully God. He has an indestructible life. I love some of the details of the Bible story. 
Uh, we were watching, a, a, I think it was Ben-Hur, the latest in, uh, movie production of Ben-Hur. And they have a scene where Jesus is outside the Jerusalem and he's being crucified. At the end of his life, they got one thing really wrong and it really boiled my potatoes. And uh, he's on the cross and as he dies, he just kind of finished. And that's it. I said, no, that's not what the Bible says. My kids get grumpy because they say, Dad, you're always ruining the story by over the details. But you know what is so great about that story? Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. You die on a cross. I've told you before a number of times. I know I have. You die on a cross by suffocation. You can no longer breathe. What you can do is you can breathe in, but you can't breathe out. So you can breathe in, but you can't speak. So in order to speak on a cross, what they have to do is push down the nails in their feet and their arms, relieve all the tension off their shoulders, their arms, their pectoral muscles, so that the, the diaphragm can push the air out and so you can speak. So when Jesus died, you know what he did? He shouted. He pushed down the nails, and he got a great big breath the sign that he should have lived a lot longer, and he shouted, it's finished, and he commended his spirit to go to God. The nails, the thorns, the sword, the spear, the flogging, none of that took his life. Jesus gave it up. And because he has an indestructible life, he had to give his life up for us. So does the Bible itself describe Jesus as a high priest at all? You say, well... You don't see a lot of it, don't hear much mention. There's a lot in Hebrews, but also in the Gospels. There's a couple scenes in the Gospels that show Jesus actually exercising his priestly function. In Mark 11, what's he do? He goes into the temple with the whip of cords. Great scene. And he has these cords, and he drives out all the animals. They all go fleeing across the temple courts, and he overturns all the tables, and he says, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. And what's he doing? He is fulfilling his priestly duty as a guardian of his father's house to keep it clean and acceptable for worship. That's amazing. He is doing what a priest, he's doing what all those high priests and other priests standing there making money should have done. That's why he was so angry. In Mark 12, verse 41, he observes, he's sitting at the temple treasury there, and the people coming by and they're putting in their money. And the rich folks are coming by and they've got their nice little bag of money and they're putting it in with great pomp and ceremony. And up shuffles this dear old stooped over widow. And she takes her what amounts to, I think it's a quarter of one cent. And she puts it into the offering. And he watches her and he commends her for what she is doing. And he has his priestly role. He is overseeing the worship of the people. And he is commending those who are worshiping properly. In Mark verse 14, sorry, he attends a dinner which is held in his honor. And he's lying on the table there. And a woman comes in. The Bible describes how this woman takes an alabaster vase of nard. And she breaks it. And she pours all this nard out over his, I think it's his head. Don't quote me on that. And she pours it on him and she anoints him. And that smell would have filled the whole house just as surely as the oil on Aaron's head would have, the smell would have pervaded the whole tabernacle everywhere Aaron went. So when she poured that nard on Jesus' head, the smell of that oil would have filled the whole house. 
And Jesus says, she has prepared for my burial. But what we can see is the anointing is a symbolic reflection of Aaron's high priestly anointing before he began his ministry. And just like that fragrance filled tabernacle, so the fragrance of the oil filled the house. It's a beautiful picture of a woman's love and worship for her Savior. It's also a beautiful picture of Jesus as the high priest being anointed for his ministry. In John 17, it's one of the beautifulest, beautifulest, one of the nicest pictures of Jesus' priestly ministry. What does he do? He stops and he prays. And all through the Bible, through the Gospels, sorry, we're given pictures and scenes of Jesus in prayer. And John 17 is one of the longest chapters that records his praying for himself and his coming suffering and praying that God will again return that glory to him. And then he prays for his disciples. And then what else he does? He prays for us. He prays for the disciples who are yet to come. That's us. And before he goes to the cross, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about his believers. He's thinking about his followers. He's praying for them. And finally, in Matthew 26, 27, and Mark 15, and Luke 23, and John 19, these record Jesus' ultimate act of high priestly ministry. He, unlike his sinful counterparts, did not offer the blood of an animal for his people's sin. He offered himself for our sin. The only high priest in recorded biblical history who came as both priest and offering, both priest and sacrifice, and he gave himself his own blood for our sin. He offered himself and his blood and his suffering and death. He offered himself as the only valid sacrifice ever to be offered. It was the only satisfactory one. No blood of bull, no blood of goat or sheep could be possibly accepted for us. But the Bible says that the father will see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. It was enough. It was the only sacrifice that could truly atone for sin. In case you're wondering, atonement, if you've never heard that word before, I don't know what it means, it literally means to purchase salvation. Okay, so when you hear the word atonement, it means that if someone is purchasing or obtaining salvation for another. Jesus' death was the only sacrifice that could truly purchase our salvation, could truly atone for our sin. Jesus, by his actions, is the Christ. He is the anointed high priest. He offered a sacrifice for his people. He offered his own blood. And inside the book of Hebrews, we have all these statements. I want to just skim through them and give them to you because it's so beautiful. And I want you just to soak up your mind and think about Christ this morning as you're sitting there. In Hebrews 2 verse 17, we have a merciful and faithful high priest. We have a high priest who made propitiation for his people's sin. For the young people here, the little ones, you wonder what propitiation means? It means to turn someone's anger away. The Bible describes in Isaiah 12, Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Jesus' death and his suffering turned the anger of God away from us. In Hebrews 4.15, we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses even though he himself was without sin. Your weaknesses? Your struggles? You think Jesus doesn't understand? No, a thousand times no. He understands. He sympathizes. He gets it. And he puts his arm around your shoulders as he's praying for you. And he says, I understand. I get it. I know what you're going through. 
The Bible describes his temptation. And we often think of temptation like it gets to a certain point and then kind of stops. And for us, we never see the full measure of temptation because it get, increases and increases and increases and increases, and eventually we give into it, and then we, and it stops. But in Jesus, in his life, in his temptation, temptation went to the infinite extreme of what it could possibly go to, and Jesus still said no. He understands what we're going through, the sorrows and the heartaches and the broken hearts that you're experiencing, even this time of year. They say Christmas is one of the most depressing times of year for a lot of people. Jesus gets it. He understands. In Hebrews 5, 8 to 10, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who experienced obedience in the things he suffered, and because of that, he is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In Hebrews 7, 1 to 22, we have a great high priest whose order was that of Melchizedek. He had no father or mother, no beginning of days or end of days, and so we have a high priest of a new and different order who has an indestructible life. He had no beginning of days. He will have no end of days. His ministry never fails because of death, because he cannot die. It never ends. You think you can outlast Jesus' prayers? You can't, because no matter how long you live, Jesus will live longer, and he'll live into eternity. He's always been alive. He has an indestructible life. In Hebrews 7, verse 25, we have a great high priest who can save those who draw near to God since he lives forever to make intercession for them. He continues his high priestly ministry of praying for us. In 8, chapter 1, sorry, 8 and verse 1, we hit his main point. He says, we have such a great high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the anointed high priest. Jesus is not merely another high priest. He's not the last in a long line of priests. Jesus Christ is a high priest of an entirely different order. He is a superior high priest. He didn't need to offer a sacrifice himself. He didn't offer the blood of bulls and goats who can never atone for one single sin. He offered his own blood for us that can make us clean, that can wash us clean, that can give us life. Now, you're sitting there right now, and you're looking down at your Bible at Mark chapter 8 and verse 29, and you're wondering to yourself, how in the world do we get from 8 and 29 all the way over to Hebrews chapter 8 in that little bit of time? So here's the connection. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and being the Christ, he is the anointed of God. He is the anointed high priest. We see that all those verses... The question I'm asking all of us to answer today is this. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's all said and done. The lights go out at night. Who do you say Jesus is? The book of 1 John tells us that if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, we are born of God. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he the Christ to you? Is he the one that has spoken the words of God and you're listening to him? Is he the one who is the high priest who has gone and offered his blood, not just for the people of Israel, not just for the people of God, but for you? Who is he? Sadly for too many of us, he is little more than Elijah or one of the prophets. A great man in history we like to think about. 
a Savior, we like to rejoice at his birth and Christmas because we get lots of treats and goodies and, and time off and we go to the beach and all those great fun things. But it's so much more than that. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Peter, through the revelation of God the Father, spoke the words, You are the Christ. You are the one. Anointed with the Holy Spirit, you're the one who will speak the words, who has spoken the words. You're the one who will go to a cross. You're the one who is the high priest, who will offer himself for his people. Who is Jesus to you? You think that's a really simple question to ask in a church that's been around with people who have been believers for so many years. My greatest fear is, for some of us, we have made an intellectual decision about who Jesus is, and it's nothing more than that. And so I'm going to keep firing that question at you and make you think about it. Make me think about it. Who is Jesus? Is he the Christ? Is he the anointed of God? If you confess that Jesus is the Christ, you're identifying something massively important about him. To me, personally, he is the anointed prophet of God, and so I must listen to his words. To me, and I hope for you too, he is the anointed high priest. And his priestly work on the cross achieves something highly significant. He actually purchased my salvation. He actually died in my place. And he actually pried me free from the wrath of God. Never again. And you know the greatest thing that I held in my heart? You say, what proof do you have of your salvation? How can you prove it? Well, here's one proof. The book of Hebrews tells us very clearly in 9 and verse 9 and 9 and verse 14, I believe they are, that the Old Testament system could do a lot of things, but it could not cleanse the conscience. But Jesus' blood can cleanse the conscience. And when I stand before God, there is that little nagging voice inside my head that says, remember, December 4th, 1982, you did this. Remember, you did this. Remember the lies you told. Satan and my conscience won't stand there and look at God like a prosecutor and say, this is the one who sinned against you, and here's all the evidence. Because my conscience, by the blood of Christ, has been washed clean, been removed. Satan will go to him and he'll go, this is the... Oh, never mind. It's all done. It's removed. So let me ask you, what's your conscience tell you? So you can say, I go to church every Sunday. You know, I love the Lord. You know, I read my Bible every day. I pray for hours and You know, I give my offerings and tithes. You know, I do this and that and the other things. And you can present all kinds of evidences that you think will show that you are saved. And all they do is show people around you what you think is proof of salvation. But what about your conscience? What does it say to you? One of the most beautiful things. We talk about joy and peace a lot. And it seems like we have created and designed ways to generate joy. To generate a sense of peace. How is it that Peter, the night he's about to be put to death, chained up between four soldiers on either side, can sleep soundly like a baby? 
How, is he, how can he do that? He has peace with God. That's how. How is it that a person, we hear about martyrs in the Old Testament, martyrs even in the Reformation times, going to the cross, going to a stake, being put to death for their faith. How is it they have incredible joy? How is it some of the martyrs in the English Reformation were singing hymns as the flames ate away at their lower limbs? They had joy and they had peace unlike anything that we can generate and we can produce. Why? Because their consciences had been washed clean. They knew what it was to have peace in their hearts with God. So don't tell me you're a Christian because you go to church. Don't tell me you're a Christian because you read your Bible. Trust me, let's get the Muslims out and compare notes. They read theirs far more than we read ours. Don't tell me you're a Christian because you pray. People in every religion pray. Don't tell me you're a Christian because you think you prayed a prayer, or you said a deed, or you signed a card somewhere. That's not it. The one undeniable element that you can produce is I have a clear conscience before God. My conscience has been washed clean. My sin has been taken by Jesus. His blood was offered for me. On the heavenly doors, the door opens. Why should we let you in? Let me tell you the only answer. The only answer you're going to stand there and say is because Jesus' blood has been applied to me. Because Jesus died on a cross, I can come in. That's my only plea. Where do you stand before God this morning? Do you have that peace? Can you say, not just because it's a Bible verse, but can you say from the depths of your heart, He is the Christ. And I believe that Jesus is the Christ. He died for me. And he set me free. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we're going to sing one more hymn this evening, oh, this morning. Loving Father, we give you thanks again for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we come before you, we come in the fact of his, his finished work. We come here this morning, Father, not with blood of bulls and goats, not with blood of sheep, not with a great bronze altar and fire that climbs high and smoke that rises up. Father, we come because Jesus has come and he is the Christ to us. He has offered his blood for us and we come here and we have no other plea, as the hymn writer said, but that Jesus died and he died for me. Father, I plead with you this morning that the Spirit of God that qualified and filled Jesus and led him and empowered him and enabled him to do his work, Father, I plead with you that that same Holy Spirit would move through this place. Father, it would convict of sin, that he would remind those who do not know you that their sin is not covered. Father, I plead with you that you would bring salvation to those who don't truly know you. Father, I cry out to you that we would see souls saved. Father, we ask you for your blessing. We plead with you, O God. 
Father, for those that are here this morning and do know you and are walking with you, and Father, they're struggling and troubled by different things, Father, we pray that you would remind them and encourage them with the fact that Jesus prays for them, that he understands their situation. He can empathize and sympathize with them. Father, strengthen failing and weakened hearts. Strengthen weakened knees. Father, encourage the saints this morning, we pray, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we ask you these things, and we give thanks again, O God, for the word of God. We thank you, Father, for our time. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.